Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 17. An insight that changed everything. For most of human history, in most societies, people made sense of the world around them by imagining there to be some form of intentionality. Our ancestors saw all kinds of extraneous agency with spirits and supernatural forces behind what we today recognise as perfectly natural phenomenon, from thunderstorms to crop failures. In ancient Mexico, the sun was believed to rise because of the god Huitzilopochtli. In Egypt, it was due to Ra. Crops grew in Mesopotamia, thanks to Ninutra. And in China, it was Shenong. If the rains came to India, it was because Indra was pleased. Plague and famine in ancient Iraq meant that Ira was angry. This idea that some supernatural force was calling the shots was a remarkably persistent and widespread notion. And this idea of deliberate design behind events ran through much of Western thought as well. Plato suggested that society worked by imitating some sort of cosmic order. Aristotle saw intentionality in inanimate matter. From Homer to Luther, thinkers have thought that divine direction was somehow central to the affairs of humankind. Homer records how the gods decided the outcome of battles. Even Luther insisted that our fate was in his hands. Inshallah, you might almost say. What's been unique about Western thought, however, is that alongside this idea of a divinely orchestrated universe ran a countervailing belief that repudiated the notion of any kind of divine design at all. Order, this alternative insight suggested, is something that emerges by itself. The world and what's in it happens without any kind of top-down direction. So sitting alongside Plato and Aristotle with their ideas of a designed cosmic order and intentionality and inanimate matter was a strand of Greek thought that rejected any notion of divine design. And this school of philosophy is what you might call the Epicurean school of philosophy, named after the Greek thinker Epicurus. The Epicureans understood that the world and all that was in it was not the product of some grandly godly plan, but was self-arranging. Gods, according to the Epicureans, insofar as they existed, were distant and uninvolved in the affairs of humankind. This Epicurean insight was not marginal to Greek thought. It was central to it. Look at how the Iliad or the Odyssey, those two early Greek tales, show events as all about the actions of gods. By the time of Herodotus writing his histories, events are being explained in terms of human agency and action, not that of the gods. The Epicureans drew on an even older set of Greek ideas and insights. Xenophanes had rejected mythological accounts of why things were the way they were. 
Others had argued that reality was composed of physical ingredients blended together in different ways to produce different substances. About 400 BC, long before any 18th century scientists came along, Democritus suggested that the tiniest matter was made of atoms and that everything in existence consisted of various combinations of either atoms or a void. Nothing, he insisted, exists except atoms and empty space. Epicurus drew these ideas into an overarching philosophy, one which saw the world as having emerged spontaneously, a consequence of atoms unceasingly grouping and regrouping and regrouping again. The world was made not by any divine being, according to this school of Greek thought, but by the collision and combination of atoms. Of course, if everything in the world was created by atoms, with order emerging spontaneously, where did that leave the idea of gods as being the grand architects of the natural and human world? Everything, suggested Lucretius, was spontaneous and self-organising. Long before Charles Darwin, Lucretius advanced the idea that the natural world consisted of different species of animals, which had arisen through a kind of competition in which, to use his words, those with useful characteristics survived, and those that lacked them were, as he put it, brought by nature to destruction. Long before Darwin, that seems to me a pretty good summary of the idea of natural selection. People too, according to this understanding of the world, were not made by a creator, but consisted of complex combinations of atoms. 2,000 years before Hobbes wrote Leviathan, Lucretius alluded to human civilization as having arisen out of a primitive prehistoric past, evolving not through divine direction, but through our own human agency. Where did this school of thinking leave providence? Lucretius argued that there was no need to live in fear of divine beings and their vengeance. There was, he suggested, literally nothing to fear, and according to Lucretius and Epicurus, nothing to worship either. The Epicureans argued instead that the purpose of life was the pursuit of pleasure, by which they didn't so much mean sensual hedonism, but what you might call self-interest. At times, Lucretius's six-part poem on the nature of things articulates ideas that seem so thoroughly modern, it's hard to believe that anyone thought that way 2,000 years ago. Yet lots of people did, on the nature of things is but one tiny surviving fragment of a lost Epicurean intellectual tradition that was once widespread around the Mediterranean in antiquity. What we might loosely call Epicurean insights emanated from Greece, yet they were widespread and popular throughout the Roman world, at least until the 3rd century AD. Just when the gods had ceased to be, wrote Gustave Flaubert of this period of Roman history, and the Christ had not yet come. There was a unique moment in history when man stood alone. Flaubert might have got the timeline a little askew, but for a few fleeting generations, Roman man and woman were indeed free from a sense of extraneous agency as being responsible for their day-to-day -day lives. Maintenance and moral regulation of the world were seen as self-ordering. It's in this brief interlude 
that the Roman achievement stands. Institutions existed that constrained the powerful. There were remarkable innovations in engineering and technology. Roman per capita output by the first century AD rose higher than it was to be in any large settled society until the 16th century Holland. Indeed, Roman living standards had still not been exceeded in Asia by 1950 or by most of sub-Saharan Africa by 1990. Rome, with over a million inhabitants in the first century AD, was the largest city on earth until China in the Middle Ages. Roman art and architecture, engineering and technology represented an unmatched pinnacle of human attainment until the early modern era. It's striking how, unlike the work of Plato or Aristotle, not a single piece of Epicurus's writing survives and almost nothing of Democritus's prodigious output. Indeed, the only reason we know much about the Epicurean school of philosophy at all is down to the survival of a single copy of Lucretius's only work, which turned up almost miraculously in the library of a 15th century monastery. To be sure, the decay of parchment and papyrus means that the work of most writers and thinkers from the classical world have disappeared forever. What we know about some of the greatest minds of the past has only been passed down to us third hand. It's estimated that three quarters of Aristotle's work has been lost. Many Greek and Roman works failed to survive down the centuries, and it's notable that the school of thought in antiquity that rejected the idea of divine design was almost entirely extinguished. Plato and Aristotle could, with their notion of intentionality, be accommodated into the teachings of the early Christian church. The ideas of Epicurus, however, couldn't. A philosophy that taught that order was an emergent phenomenon seems to have been regarded as an affront. What was it about this Epicurean set of ideas that was so offensive? Part of it comes down to practical politics, as Rome became an imperial power with a small elite needing to direct ever greater resources and manpower to run what was in effect a giant war machine fueled by plunder. This elite needed a creed that enabled them to marshal resources, to cement their position at the apex and the ability to order an empire from on high. Initially, emperors attempted to do this by simply declaring themselves to be divine. From that point on, rulers perhaps had little sympathy for a Greek intellectual tradition that insisted on law and justice as needing legitimising. Perhaps it was precisely in order to provide them with an ethical underpinning to legitimise the way they ruled that Roman imperial rulers turned to this new creed. From the time of Constantine, Christianity became a state-backed religion. Useful for trying to mould together a multicultural polygot empire, the new religion conveniently emphasised ideas of divine design and purpose. Epicurean ideas posed a threat to all of this, with the insistence that they had that the world worked fine without any top-down direction. It was perhaps more than a little inconvenient for the rulers of the late Roman Empire. If Epicurean ideas and outlooks were attacked and extinguished, they were done so by some remarkably effective propagandists, 
Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome and a host of others attacked Epicurean ideas in various tracts and sermons. With great dishonesty but devastating effectiveness, these sometimes less than saintly propagandists portrayed this belief system that emphasised frugality and simple living as being all about the pursuit of sensual pleasure instead. It's a misrepresentation about Epicureanism that persists to this day. And incidentally, it perhaps explains why, in his letter to William Short, Thomas Jefferson, of the American founding, still felt the need to refer to what he called the genuine doctrines of Epicurus, as opposed to what he referred to as the imputed. Thus was a Greek philosophy that acknowledged humans as possessing their own agency, grotesquely misrepresented as a cult of decadence by those who would rather we submit to their notion of an extraneous agency. For the next 13 centuries, what had been Roman Europe was preyed upon by parasites. Parasites who organised society, or, or perhaps you should say disorganised society, for their own intent and purpose. A dark age lasted for centuries, and with society reverting back to a subsistence level, parasitic warlords extracted whatever they could get from the productive peasantry. The parasites have waged a long war against this Greek insight that order is an emergent phenomenon. They not only largely extinguished Lucretius's ideas in the 1st and 2nd century, they burnt the Italian monk Giordano Bruno in the 16th century and Spinoza's books in the 17th century. They were still fuming over Darwin in the 19th. It was once believed that farming originated from a single source somewhere in the Middle East a few thousand years ago. Today we know that farming actually arose entirely independently at different times in different places. Different people, it seems can come to the same kind of conclusion. So too it seems when it comes to the notion of self-order. We know that insights about self-order, an essential ingredient for a free society, existed in antiquity. And we know too that such insights were almost entirely extinguished. But how and why did they come back? Venice in the Middle Ages was not a great seat of classical learning. One simply wouldn't have found that many of the sort of ancient Epicurean texts there before the Renaissance. The Venetians sadly would have been probably more likely to burn any Greek texts they came across lingering in the libraries of Constantinople rather than try and absorb and understand them. Venice however rather like those Early South American agriculturalists who learnt how to farm independently for themselves discovered something about self-order by accident. How did this happen? Long before anyone had ever heard of Luther, Venice just happened to have her own autonomous church. From the early days of the Venetian Republic, the city-state took great care to cultivate the myth that St Mark had established his own church on the Rialto. Venice's ability to arrange her own religious affairs proved to be a critical step, yet one that historians often merely note in passing as if it was simply some kind of local quirk or curiosity, no more remarkable than some of Venice's distinctive architecture. 
But having a major league saint like St. Mark, found his own church, enabled Venice to organise religious matters for herself. She was able to claim that she and her church had parity with the Pope and with St. Peter in Rome. Being beyond papal jurisdiction in this way helped safeguard Venice's independence. She could and did simply ignore the edicts of popes and emperors. She was able to maintain her own independent foreign and trade policy, both within Christendom and beyond it. Because she was able to organise her own religious affairs, she was able to create all sorts of conditions that proved critical for economic takeoff. It gave Venice an autonomy over legal matters, not accepting the overarching authority of the Pope or of some imperial authority on the mainland, helped ensure that power within the city-state remained diffuse. It meant it was far harder for the kind of imperial or papal interest to emerge within Venice, as has happened within many northern Italian cities at the time. As happened in Holland later on, the productive merchant interest was able to prevail. The Renaissance was very much a rebirth. It was, as the name suggests, a time when insights from the classical past, which had long been dead, came alive again. One of the many rediscoveries, as we've seen, was a single copy of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things. According to the writer Stephen Greenblatt, the publication of this lost work caused a slow-moving sensation. It was in time he shows to influence Newton, Galileo and many others. From Lucretius's rediscovered work, ideas about atomism started to circulate, and within the heretical notion of a self-ordering universe. As Bruno's unfortunate fate showed when he was burnt at the stake in Rome, it remained extremely dangerous to articulate these ideas. And yet the implication of them couldn't be held back. The printing press ultimately saw to that. Ideas about how a self-ordered society might operate began to percolate in all sorts of different ways. The Greek historian Polybius's histories, less heretical perhaps, with its detailed description of the Roman Republican constitution, was also rediscovered and widely read. In Holland, Spinoza's claim that the world unfolded according to eternal laws, not extraneous whim, had a great deal in common with certain schools of philosophy in ancient Greece, the Stoics as well as the Epicureans. However offensive this idea was to Spinoza's co-religionists, he was exiled from his local Jewish community, he was not advocating atheism any more than Hobbes had. But like Hobbes, the implications of his ideas were far-reaching. The impact of all these rediscovered insights from antiquity was perhaps not immediate, but their effect can clearly be seen when one compares the outcome of the English Revolution in the late 17th century with that of the American one a hundred years later. When John Locke returned to England from exile in the Low Countries in 1688, intent on helping overthrow the old Stuart order. 
he came not only with a Dutch king, but with Dutch ideas too. Locke's revolution boiled down to installing a better king, one with a Dutch appreciation he hoped of monarchical minimalism, rather than setting out to find an alternative to monarchy. The most important constitutional innovation Locke and his contemporaries came up with was perhaps the idea of a Bill of Rights, which, if anything, seemed a little Venetian. Just like the kind of contract imposed on an incoming doge, the Bill of Rights was a kind of contract intended to rein in the excesses of a future king. Contrast that with what happened a century or so later after the American Revolution. The American founding fathers were influenced heavily by Locke, so much so, in fact, they borrowed the idea of a Bill of Rights, incorporating not only the idea, but often the actual text, and making it part of their new constitution in the form of the first ten amendments. Yet the Founding Fathers also introduced a whole series of innovations that owed nothing to Locke, or to England, or to the Netherlands. They weren't in the business of seeking to install an American king to rule over their newly independent colonies. What the Founding Fathers did was to try to revive an even grander Republican tradition. After almost 2,000 years, they sought to resurrect elements of the Roman Constitution in the New World. It's why they built a Senate and a capital on the banks of the Potomac. The Founding Fathers had read Polybius and were familiar with the Roman Republican tradition in the way that the Dutch and the English at the time of their upheaval simply weren't. Thus, while the Venetians and the Dutch stumbled across the idea of self-order by accident, and the English attempted it by emulation, importing a Dutch king to rule over them, the Americans achieved it by copying what they knew from the pages of Polybius. Polybius gave the Founding Fathers the idea of constraining the powerful by having a series of competing officials, a system of checks and balances, or even a separation of powers, one might say. No single faction or party Madison and his colleagues hoped could ever dominate. They put in place safeguards not only against another George III, but against the emergence of an American Caesar, or a rabble-rousing Signore. Ancient insights about self-order, for so long so peripheral, had started to take centre stage once again in human affairs. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, even called himself an Epicurean. On reading Lucretius, it was, he declared, a summary of everything rational in moral philosophy which Greece and Rome have left us. The American Declaration, which Jefferson wrote, is not just a rallying cry to the cause of a free people seeking to govern their own affairs. In its insistence on the inalienable right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, is there not also an echo of Epicurus? In the two centuries or so since Jefferson wrote those words, ideas about self-order have gone global. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs. Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, 
please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.